This is the Square Peg Podcast, starring Andrew Lawrence and a cast of mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. And now, here's your host, Andrew Lawrence. Not all of us look the way the world expects us to look, think as the world expects us to think, or arrive at our destination the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and here are their stories. And thank you to the Searchlight Needles for getting us started as always. The Needles aren't just a quartet of middle-aged, overweight, and balding El Pasoans. Robert Martinez, Josh Smith, Adrian Ortiz, and David Science are four really fantastic guys who hold down jobs and take care of families during the week, and they rock out on weekends. You can find them on the web at www.searchlightneedles.com, on Facebook, and you can download their album on all streaming services. My guest today is Gerald Byers, who is the Chief Deputy District Attorney in New Mexico's 3rd Judicial District, who is running unopposed for the Office of 3rd Judicial District Attorney in November. He's a native of Texas, a graduate of the United States Naval Academy, and he's been practicing law for 23 years. Gerald, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks, Andrew. Gerald, uh, you are running unopposed. And Mm -hmm. quick side note here, we at the Square Peg Podcast do not expressly talk about politics this is not a political show and just to make sure everybody understands we're not giving anybody any undue press or promotion or endorsement gerald is running unopposed and he is in studio today and was asked to come talk on the show because he has an interesting story and uh has uh have some several intersecting uh qualifiers for being called a square peg or a mold breaker trailblazer or taker of road roads less traveled uh, in any case, Gerald, you're from Wichita Falls, Texas. Uh, you moved there uh, when you're about 12 years old? Uh, thereabouts, yeah. Um, about 12 after uh, my dad came back to the States after a tour in Germany, yeah. And your father was a veteran of the United States Air Force? Yes, sir, he was. A career? Yes. And you grew up uh, in Wichita Falls, which I now know is in north-central Texas, mm-hmm. home of Midwestern State University. Right. And you were there with your parents and your brother. Mm-hmm. You, growing up in the 1970s, I guess at that point you'd already been exposed to some very overt displays of one of the uglier parts of our history in the United States. Tell us about that. Well, sure. Um, at, at that time, uh, there was a lot of strife between uh, ethnic groups in the, in the country. The civil rights uh, movement was in full swing. Uh, you know, there were differing views. Um, but the thing about it is, is that there was that was a great time of growth in the country, because I still remember, and every time I see it on the on the uh, on newsreels where you have President Johnson, and his speech, and whenever he says, "and we shall overcome," because I was a little kid at that time, and I remembered what those words meant whenever I heard um, members of uh, NAACP or Dr. King or anybody else speak them, but to hear them spoken by the President of the United States indicated very, very clearly that uh, this was something very significant. And so um, it is with that backdrop that a lot of barriers to progress um, eroded, and frankly, um, that sort of opened the way for for me to um, have what I would call a successful life. Um, It opened the door to colleges, service academies, and um, a lot of other opportunities that my father didn't have the opportunity to uh, experience. Was there ever any fear on your part, having experienced these things, that you may not, despite uh, 
some of the progress that had been made. Uh, were there any fears that you, maybe you wouldn't be able to do some of the things you wanted to do because of some things that are more subtle or, or not, you know, done, but maybe not said out loud? Well, actually, uh, I don't know if it was a, a, an aspect of my age at the time, because, you know, whenever people are younger, they seem to th- either be ignorant of reality or believe that they're invincible. But no, I didn't. I didn't experience any any fears or doubts about um, about uh, opportunity, um, and I think that a large part of that is due to the fact that my parents were were great believers in me and my brother being able to accomplish whatever it is that that we set our minds to, and that was reinforced in the schools and in other uh, environments where people were very very supportive. They wanted to see there was a move in the country at that point that that. Um, uh, elders and teachers wanted to see younger people succeed. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll never forget, I, I had a junior ROTC instructor who told me uh, that, hey, you know, uh, you've got what it takes. You could be a, a, a military officer. And um, just little words of encouragement like that carry a young person a long way. So you graduated high school in 1976? 76. And I have learned recently that you were actually the first uh, African-American, man or woman, to go to a service academy from Wichita Falls, Texas. Yes, sir. And you went through the application process. You were denied at the Air Force Academy. Mm-hmm. That was you mainly were... because I wear glasses. <laughs> they wanted everybody to be twenty twenty, And they said, ah, you're twenty two hundred. Sorry. Because the only people who are officers in the Air Force are pilots. Well, no, no, not the only ones, but yeah, that's that was their insert their sarcasm. Standard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were accepted to United States Military Academy and United States Naval Academy, and you chose the Naval Academy because because, uh, in my opinion, at that time, it offered greater opportunity for uh, different uh, um, career fields uh, upon graduation, uh, either aviation. Um, Surface warships, um, submarines, uh, Marine Corps, um, all different types of, of opportunities, whereas the, the Army was a little bit more ground-oriented. So. And were your, were your parents supportive of your choice? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, my dad, uh, he talked with me about it, and he had recommended that I um, go to West Point as opposed to Navy. Um, and I said, well, you know— um, I appreciated that that insight. Um, I still felt that I wanted to uh, go into the submarine fleet, and um, so I, I opted to go Navy. But um, did you apply to any? Um, I don't want to call them regular universities, but non-military academy universities. Um, no, not actually. I applied for uh, scholarships, uh, Army ROTC and Na- and Navy ROTC, and got those. I uh, went down to Texas A and M, but no, the the military was. Pretty much, that was that was my end objective, you know. And when you entered the Naval Academy, you went and swore your oath in mm-hmm. July of 1976. Correct. With how many other African Americans? Uh, 81. Out of a class of? About 1,200. And do you believe, not that you would have any other, anything else to compare it against, mm-hmm. but do you believe that your reception uh, to the Naval Academy as a black man, and, and the Naval Academy had, had its first... Uh, midshipmen of, of african-american descent in 1944 so it certainly wasn't something that was new but i would imagine that as any institution or university that's steeped in tradition um i would imagine there was probably some 
things that you experienced that, again, maybe not have been said out loud, but were understood. Indeed, that's correct. Um, and we have to remember that at this time, service academies were in transition. Um, there had been a moratorium placed on uh, what was traditionally known as physical hazing. And so upperclassmen had to get creative and find other ways to uh, ensure that you had what we called a plebe year, um, which was basically um, going through all types of mental and emotional uh, torment uh, to see how a person uh, responds under pressure, that type of thing. But there was something else that was also going on in the class of 1980 at all of the service academies was the first one that uh, had women uh, as members of the of the brigade of midshipmen. And uh, that was an eye-opening experience to a lot of the women because they had never experienced what um, being disliked for a reason that they couldn't understand that was not their fault. And uh, wasn't 1976 the first year that all three service academies uh, had women entering? Indeed, it was. Do you think that the I hadn't I hadn't even thought about this until now. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there was there were larger misgivings about having women in the service academies than African-Americans? Well, let me answer it this way. The class every class gets to design their class ring. Class of 79. They put on their class ring omnis viri, which is the last all-male class. That is the degree to which it shook the the, the foundation of the institution. And um, do you think that took some heat? Do you oh, think off of off of you and the other? Oh no, the other eighty black midshipmen. No, 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 uh, no. Uh, heat is there in abundance, and it's there for a reason. <laughs> well, uh, with regard to how how male white male upperclassmen treated. Oh yeah. Well, no, no, it's 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 hard to say. Um the the instances of racism if, if you know, since we're on that topic, uh I would say were were more subtle as opposed to overt. Um but you got to keep in mind, you know, at that time I was 18 years old, I had lived through this, so you know it when you see it. It's not like it's a mistake. Uh and the individuals who are engaged in it uh, they know it too. What was interesting is that the young ladies who were my classmates had never experienced anything like that. And a lot of my classmates would come to me and say, how do you deal with this? How how do you deal with being subjugated just because of who you are? Where were these people from that they hadn't? No, it's just, it's just not part of their life. See, if a person goes through life and they have not been uh, unfairly mistreated, they don't know how to deal with that. Well, this was the first time that uh, a white female midshipman had ever been unfairly mistreated. I, I mean, why should should her upperclassmen be coming down on her um, more harshly than um, uh, another male classmate? You know, and, was, and your roommate, your freshman year, your plebe year, white black. Oh, um, both of them. Both of my, well, it changed over the summer. Over the summer, um, both were uh, white male. Well, we're all male, you know. Um, in, in my company, we didn't have any, any women in, in my plebeier company. And um, so, yeah, they were, they were all male, but um, white males. But at, during the academic year, um, it was uh, me, another African-American male, and an Anglo male. 
Any issues that you saw uh, with the summer? The two, your two white male roommates. Mm-hmm. First time they'd ever slept in the same room with a black man, probably. Mm-hmm. Any any issues there? Was it discussed? Did no. you guys have? Was there, is there time to oh. discuss things? Or? Oh yeah, was it discussed? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, it, it was totally discussed, and that's one of the beautiful things about that experience is because we all come from different backgrounds. You know, uh, there was uh, one of my roommates from was from Florida, um, and he had uh, experienced. You know, he had gone. Over the summers, and he was working in in fields, uh, picking melons and things of that nature, and and interacting with black people that way, or uh, in sports teams in school and things of that nature, but not to the extent to where you actually sit down and talk with somebody about a subject over an extended period of time and get their perspective, their point of view, where they're coming from, uh, how they have encountered that particular situation in their life prior to that, and. It was it was a wonderful opportunity for us to share our experiences, because uh, really uh, it, it's it's a great opportunity to grow and it's critical, because remember this institution is designed to create officers for the fleet, and those officers are going to be uh, leading men and women into combat, and you have to know your people, you have to know what makes them tick, you have to in order to be a good thorough leader. You have to know all of these things, and there's no other place for these individuals, for, let's say, my, my uh, Anglo uh, roommate, to have learned these things except from his classmates because there's no class on that. You know, there's, there's, there, and so it's a, it's a really wonderful experience. Did you ever see the movie The Lords of Discipline? Mm, may have a long time ago, but don't recall it. Do you, you, do you know what I'm talking about? Does I, it ring a bell? I think, it's, uh, I think so, but uh, not really. I saw it as a kid, and it was my impression until I looked it up not that long ago that it was an actual true story. It's not. My uh-huh. impression was that it took place at the Citadel in South Carolina about the first black uh, cadet there. Mm-hmm. Um, I come to find out it was actually fictional. Interestingly enough, when it was made in the early 1980s, it was actually filmed in England because none of the state military academies would allow them to address such an issue and use their... Um, anyway, it, it kind of it reminded me because it was about the time period that you were uh, attending the uh, Naval Academy uh-huh. uh, and addressed, obviously, some of the same issues. So you graduated in class of 1980? Yes. And you your MOS? Oh, well, uh, unrestricted line officer. Uh, I went to um, – uh, f- I wanted to go Marine Corps. Uh, this is a weird story. Um, a lot of us wanted to go Marine Corps. Except that Admiral Rickover had different designs, and so what he he needed, there weren't enough volunteers to go into a submarine program, and so what he did was he drafted half of the class uh, to go into a nuclear power program. Well, imagine you've taken the hardest courses to get your aer- aero uh, aeronautical engineering degree or electrical engineering degree or whatever, so you could go uh, down to Pensacola, fly F-14s be a member of the Blue Angels flight demonstration team, whatever, right? Uh, And then all of a sudden, you're on the verge of graduating, and the next thing you know, all of a sudden, you're in an interview to be on a submarine. Well, uh, what happened is that a lot of people, a lot of my classmates said, eh, not doing that. The Marine Corps had unlimited billets for pilots, and so they opted to go into the Marine Corps. Well, uh, the Marine Corps' total number of available um, officer slots are limited by a congressional mandate uh, to a certain percentage of the entire class. Well, those all filled up. 
Well, the rest of us who just wanted to go infantry, you know, we just like to get out there and wiggle the weeds or whatever. Um, there was no room at the end. And so for us, then we had to opt for something else, right? And so um, I found myself on service selection night going, great, this is wonderful. So I spent all this time getting ready to go into the Marine Corps. And um, so now my option is Navy Air. Oh, how hard, uh, how terrible is that, right? Who doesn't want to be an aviator? So um, go down to Pensacola. And since I wear glasses, it was uh, um, backseater. Um, fighter fighter pilot was out, uh, right? Yeah, that was the uh, pilot. Any, any pilot is out, right? So it was a naval flight officer. And going through the training there. And so then I went through uh, ground school, basic and intermediate, and then left the training program. And uh, there's all kinds of ideas and reasons about that. But found myself on board a surface ship, went to um, surface warfare school, and um, then deployed over to the eastern Mediterranean, October 20th of 1983. Uh, three days out, uh, our force split. Half of us went down to Grenada to engage in that. We were supposed to be going over to the Indian Ocean. We pulled into Naples, and uh, after nine days crossing the Atlantic, um, CO called an emergency recall that night. We got word that we were going over to Beirut. That uh, was going to be when you said October of 1983. That was, I was thinking you were going to, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was that. So, um, so we get over there, um, and it was interesting because, you know, uh, leaders always ask that question, well, um, how do you define that, that defining moment? So I'm uh, walking uh, on board ship and pop through the uh, hatch going to the weather deck, and I see one of my sailors in my division, and his eyes are about the size of saucers. And uh, he's saying, Lieutenant, look. And so... I turn over there, I, I turn and look, and there's this hellacious firefight that's going on right on shore, you know. And, you know, we got the front row seat, right? And there's tracers going, green tracers going left, red tracers going right. You got uh, mortars going off, all of this other kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, just out of me comes this phrase, it's, I'm not dying here. And where that came from? Um well, there's a spiritual side of it, but that's not what this is all about. But anyway, so uh, Murray looks at me and he goes, well, Lieutenant, what do we do? And I just told him, I said, look, um, follow orders, do your job. We'll all get home together. Turn around, went back up to, to go to the bridge to find out what the hell is going on. Uh, why aren't we at general quarters, right? Um, and that was the first point whenever it was sort of like no this is real uh this is very real i guess i forgot to we kind of skipped over what was your bachelor's degree in oh political science in political science because they're you know directly relatable positions in the navy for someone with a political science degree <laughs> well, would, would it have helped you do you think getting getting a slot as a as an aviator or doing something more along the lines of what you had planned had you majored in something more Oh, uh, in line with that or maybe, maybe. Uh, but, you know, there's the, the thing about the service academies. I, I can't speak to to West Point, but but Navy, it's a, called an 80-20 split. And you have to take like 80 percent of your classes are engineering and the other 20 can be the soft sciences or, or whatever. And if you have a 
non-technical major, which mine was not a technical major, then you can have electives like, you know, economics and things of that nature, but um, you're still going to have graduate with enough technical stuff um, uh, to qualify for an engineering degree, right? Um, everybody has to take celestial navigation. That was the great equalizer. And if you didn't pass celestial navigation, you didn't graduate, you know, and that was a killer class for a lot of people. Um, but you know, uh, if you're going to be a mariner, if you're going to be an officer, uh, if you're going to be a leader, you either make the grade or you don't. So I can accept that. This is the point right now, Gerald, where we take a little bit of break from our conversation, and I throw something at you that you're not expecting. Okay. This is really easy, and there are only two rules. You've got five seconds to give me your answer, and your answer cannot be Donald Trump. <laughs> I need you to tell me somebody you believe who is in the news right now, and it doesn't have to be a political figure. It could be an athlete or entertainer or a comedian or anybody. Somebody who's in the news right now who's famous for all the wrong reasons, who you think is a bit of a clown, jackass, idiot. Rudy Giuliani. Ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. Rudy Giuliani is our jabroni of the week. Our jabroni of the week is brought to you by the Cardenas Law Firm. Finding an attorney to help you with your legal issues can be rough. How do you find an effective and honest attorney without sacrificing your financial health? The Cardenas Law Firm breaks the mold by offering exceptional service without breaking the bank. Find them online at www.cardenaslawfirmllc.com or by calling 575-650-6003. Don't call some jabroni lawyer at some jabroni law firm. Call the Cardenas Law Firm. So anyway, Gerald, you are in the Navy, uh, commission officer. It's the early 1980s. My understanding is at this time you had to commit to six years of service after yes. graduation? Yes, five active, one reserve. Uh huh. And did you go beyond your five years? Oh, yeah, definitely did. How many years did you serve? Uh, after graduation, 11 years. And, um, you know, after I came back... Uh, uh, stateside, rolled ashore, uh, went to a duty station in um, New Orleans, uh, working at the Naval Reserve Personnel Center there, and uh, then um, went from there to Naval Air Station Chase Field in Beeville, Texas. It's now closed. It was closed as a result of the Base Realignment Commission stuff, but while I was there, I was the base security uh, and, uh, and law enforcement officer, and also in charge of... Uh, Naval Air Landing Field at Goliad that was nearby, and in the first six months that I was there, President George H.W. Bush came by, and he stayed at the Lazy F Ranch uh, for about two weeks in December of 89, and that was the same time that uh, Panama was being invaded, and I got my first opportunity to uh, assist uh, Secret Service and other federal agencies in um, facilitating the president's security which was an eye-opening experience, um, it just a really a, a point of pride about how wonderful our government and our people in our government are in, in how they can coordinate all of these things and uh, do it seamlessly, quietly. It's not obvious, and uh, it is the ultimate in total protection. I was just totally impressed. So you end up getting out of the Navy, and do yes. you go right to law school? Uh, yes, I uh, left the Navy in uh, uh, ninety, yeah, December ninety one, and um, went to law school in uh, ninety two. Why? Well, um, I had my master's at that point in it, oh, in business and in management, and uh, you know, even with that, 
finding a job, not the easiest thing in the world. And so um, I'd also wanted to uh, go into the legal profession, and I started that prior to my departure from the Navy. And uh, I'd applied to University of New Mexico and some others and got accepted and uh, moved the family out there and uh, went to law school starting in 92, graduated with class in 95. At UNM? UNM. Mm -hmm. I did not know that. Um, what was your exposure? Did you know anybody in the who had been in the Navy that you had served with who went on to law school? Did you have friends who were attorneys? Oh, well, um, there was a... There were some folks at, at my last duty station who uh, were – she was a lawyer, Ada Kroom. Uh, she wrote me a letter of recommendation, and uh, uh, that was about the extent of it. My application process had no no great uh, – there were no pull, strings pulled or anything else like that, just straight competition. Um, UNM only uh, accepts 10 people from out of state for every class. They have a very, I didn't know that. Yeah. They have a very small class, usually 100 in entering students for UNM Law every year, at least at the time I went. And, uh, you know, I, I still to this day remember uh, Dean Romero, uh, who told me, uh, it was a long conversation, but I'll shorten it down very, very short, because uh, I was talking about, you know, difficulties of being accepted at different law schools. And he turned to me quietly and said, well, there's room for you here. That that one phrase stuck with me and motivated me uh, in a lot of times that it's sort of like, well, you know what? If if somebody who I don't even know is willing to um, commit the resources to further my success and permit me to participate in this process, then that's what I need to aspire to, right? And so after graduation, after starting as a prosecutor and all of those kinds of things, I would think about that. Okay, well, how can I honor that? Because it's all about giving to other people. You know, the legal profession is all about giving to other people, giving to society, it is, at least for me as a prosecutor, because uh, our our task is to pursue justice. So, And now criminal law, was there ever any uh, choice or was there any other any doubt that that's what you were going to pursue? Oh. Any other interests while in law school? Oh, sure, sure. Uh, there was civil rights law, you know, um, but I quickly learned that in order to do that, you pretty much have to, it, it's it's hard to start that just from scratch. You have to either have a a, a network or you have to have resources or, or something else like that. All of those things, which whenever you compare that to putting food on your table, um, you opt with the practicalities. And so, uh, you know, I went into um, government uh, lawyering and prosecuting. I don't know what really the term is, but as an attorney, is do you have a uh, – I know that there's the divide between the original intent and then the other – what's the other term for the Constitution? Oh, a living document? Yeah. Where do, you, where do you see that? Hmm. Well, if it weren't for the interpretation that uh, the Constitution were a living document, I wouldn't be sitting here now. Well answered. I don't think we need to say anything more about that. <laughs> I'm going to hit you with something else. I'm sure. just looking at my notes here. On a scale of 1 to 10, how complex is the issue of a black conservative on the United States Supreme Court? And from what I can tell, is is one of the most conservative now that we no longer have Judge uh, Justice Alito. Mm -hmm. uh, Clarence Thomas is seen as being one of the most conservatives 
uh, conservative justices on the court. How how difficult and complex an issue is that? Well, um, I would just reflect that it's probably, uh, if there's any difficulty with it, I will ascribe that to Justice Thomas himself. He that's that's a matter that he himself will have to wrestle with. Um, uh, the result of his uh, decisions, the uh, the opinions that he that he um, writes. Um, I I don't hold those views. Um, I'll, the best thing for me to say at that point is just if there is an internal strife associated with uh, his ethnicity and his uh, legal opinions, uh, I'm sure that he has um, basically arrived at his legal result based upon how he understands and views law needs to be analyzed. Um, People can have differing views on that that have nothing to do with uh, with one's ethnicity. But the other side of it is that um, one must acknowledge and the law cannot ignore the fact that there are situations which exist in our nation where individuals and in certain groups suffer um, social stigma. They suffer... Um, oppression, things of that nature, um, and the law should be there to address those. If it were not, then we wouldn't have things like the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, you know what I mean? Well, not everything is just black and white. It, it covers a, law, a large swath of, it, of topics. Along the lines of addressing uh, you know, a black Supreme Court justice who doesn't mm-hmm. uh, fit what I think a lot of people would, it, it, let's just say, expect. Yes, he's not Thurgood Marshall. Right. There's a lot of... Uh, a lot of talk about the presence with everything that's going on today, and, mm-hmm. and you would hope in 2020 we would be in a post-racial America. We're not. Right. Uh, there's a lot of talk about you know black men and women serving in law enforcement and how that fits into the whole pursuit of justice and everything like that. But as a prosecutor, mm-hmm. um, is there a way you really even race aside? Is there a way as somebody whose job it is to prosecute cases brought to you by police officers mm-hmm. to ensure? justice is done and that the rights of the accused are honored, respected, and protected just as much as those of victims who you represent. Yes, I believe that there is, and its origin is in uh, the Constitution. People can come to life issues from many different, different approaches or different angles, but the bottom line is this. Whenever we stop treating people like human beings, we stop being human ourselves. It's just it's just it's just that that simple. Um, whenever we remove the humanity from uh, another person, then we're more likely than not to engage in an inhumane act ourselves. So, looking at it from that standpoint, what does the law provide? Okay, uh, the law provides that individuals who are accused of crimes have certain rights. Uh, we should respect those. We should honor those. We should ensure that those are followed in the course of the process of the criminal justice system. The law also provides in the state of New Mexico that victims are accorded certain rights. Um, and and where does this spring from? People can have a lot of different views, but at the end of the day, the one thing that I've found, it, 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 does, it doesn't matter, uh, you know, when I was overseas, we did ops where, you know, the Soviets would try to push us off course and they'd pass within like 50 feet of us or something else like that. And you're looking the enemy square in the face, okay? 
that is another human being as well. Okay. Now, back to the law, the golden rule, treat somebody else as you would want to be treated. So I look at the, a, a situation and, you know, if an officer brings me a case, uh, I look at it from the standpoint of, okay, colorblind, what is the status of the law? What is the status of the law? Uh, it's, it's just that simple. I mean, I can tell you I prosecuted in, in Amarillo, Texas for a while, and um, there were some folks over there who were members of the Aryan Nations, and I prosecuted their case. Their case was brought to me, and I dismissed it. Now, some people would say, well, what? Uh, yeah, I dismissed it. Why? Because um, there wasn't probable cause to support the charge. Now, some people might look at that and say, well, yeah, but you know what, what that organization's attitude is toward people of color. Well, it has nothing to do with the application of the constitutional protections that are there for somebody who's accused of a crime. Um, you know, so all I'm saying is that at the end of the day, uh, in order for, for me to live with myself, I have to try to um, apply the law and apply it in a way that is neutral and colorblind as best as, as, as I know how. And um, I'll just take this opportunity to sort of take a tangent um, because you mentioned the issues that are going on in the country right now, the officer-involved shootings, um, uh, incidents that spark protests and so on and so forth. Um, the truth of the matter is, as I see it, is that, yeah, the incident involves a white officer and it involves a black citizen, right? And then there's all the fervor and protest and everything else that goes on. But you know what? You know what we've not heard of is the role of prosecutors in that, okay? Who is it that is responsible for determining what charges are going to be applied and I will just flatly say that um, I don't think that the um, the prosecutors in uh, in general are in a position to um, to be heralded, okay? Because there are certain things in life that require courage, and yes, prosecutors work closely with law enforcement. But you know what? If you can't be honest with, with the folks that you work with, then you're likely not going to be honest with yourself. Frankly, whenever I die, I'm going to be honest with myself, and that's going to be my legacy. And if that means that I have to look at a factual situation and arrive at a conclusion that a member of law enforcement has been in violation of the law and there's probable cause to believe that a crime exists, it is my responsibility as a prosecutor to bring that forward just as if the person who was accused of the crime was not a law enforcement officer. And I think that that across the nation is where a lot of the problem uh, it deserves to be looked at because we have police chiefs who are resigning across the, uh, across the country. We have mayors who are under fire. Everybody's catching heat. Okay, what about the prosecutors? Where are we at? You know, I mean... Do you ever feel like, and I know that there, I have, you know, known people and uh, there are organizations I've seen, you know, on social media for, you know, black law enforcement professionals. Mm -hmm. Have you ever been approached by anybody and basically done the whole, 
how can how dare you i mean you're basically a cop you're 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 in bed with the cops and you're a black man and you're supposed to be on our side and how how does that all come about and how have you been able to deal with that um it's happened over the course of my 23 years of prosecuting um in various ways uh, sometimes people have taken offense but most of the time it's like this um i'll be approached they'll see a guy in a suit and say oh are you an attorney and i'll say yes hey can i have your card cuz i need and I'll say, well, I'm sorry, but uh, I'm a prosecutor. And then they'll back up and go. And then all of a sudden something will happen. There will be a, a look of like, oh, yeah, why not, right? And I didn't know there were black prosecutors, right? And, uh, and, and that brings us to another point, which is why shouldn't, why should somebody be surprised? Well, how much of that do you think has to do with the fact that we live in some place like New Mexico with an extremely small black population as opposed to Atlanta or Houston or Dallas or, or Chicago or something like that? Absolutely right. That is very true for this environment. But I used to, I also prosecuted in Del Rio, Texas and in Amarillo, Texas. And, um, you know, the reality is that most, the, the concept is, well, if you're going to be a lawyer, um, if you're going to be black and you're going to be a lawyer, you're going to be in criminal law, then you're going to be a criminal defense lawyer. Uh, and the black prosecutor is somehow the anomaly. But you know what? The truth is is that uh, that should not be an anomaly because every member of the community has every right to hold every position that uh, is available uh, that is necessary for the function of government and for the function of the community. You know, I'm in this position not because of my ethnicity. I'm in this position because I believe that I know how to do the work and I've earned the respect of, of a number of people um, because of how I do the work. Uh, and I don't have any feeling that people expect me to act in a black way or a non-black way or whatever that may be. Or whatever uh, that's supposed to be, right? Exactly, right? You know, but it shouldn't be a surprise. And frankly, whenever I was a little kid, I kept... I, I kept wondering, well, okay, when am I going to see a black astronaut? You know, back then, TV was black and white. Well, it was color, but most people had a black and white TV. Uh, and, you know, you'd look at football games and you'd look for the dark legs because there were very few, very few African-American football players. Okay, now it's predominantly black. Okay, fine. And my point is this, is that things change over time and People were, young black men were able to look at guys like Jim Brown, Gail Sayers, the, the icons, and say, I can do that. And so they did. Okay, well, um, I chose prosecution. I chose prosecution because I sat in a jury trial one day as a law student for five days, and I saw this woman, or, or her son, Frederick Washington, had been murdered, and she cried every day. And he... He, the defendant had been charged with uh, first-degree murder, and the jury came back with involuntary manslaughter. The judge was outraged. Everybody was outraged, okay? And I thought to myself, I could not understand why. Why wasn't this man's life valued? You know why he was murdered? Because he had been a peacemaker. There was a, there was a, a squabble between two other guys, and he got in the middle of it and tried to separate them out. And so... He took the screwdriver to the head. Well, um, so why couldn't somebody see the value of that man's life? 
Fast forward, I can't tell you how many crime scenes I've been to and cases that I've handled where clearly the perpetrator did not value the victim's life. And it and so my conversation comes full circle. For us as a society, for us as a nation, it all starts with evaluation of humanity. If we don't value one another, and this this whole thing... Um, you know, so, so-called police excessive force, uh, domestic violence. It's all about devaluing another person's humanity because we all have the ability to choose to do certain things or not do certain things. Well, barring any unforeseen circumstances, you will be uh, the next district attorney here in the 3rd Judicial District. Yes, sir. You will be the first black district attorney here in the 3rd Judicial District. And I'll go out on a limb and probably say you'll be the first uh, black district attorney uh, in the state of New Mexico. That's what I understand as well, because I've not um, heard anything contrary. And I think that your stories about being approached uh, in court and being asked if you're an attorney, asked if you're a defense attorney, and uh, you know people being a little surprised to find out that you're a prosecutor, you don't necessarily have to approach your job and tell people every single day, by the way, I'm a black prosecutor and I'm the first one. <laughs> right. Yeah. People are just going to see you and people who are not used to, uh, to seeing certain things. Um, you know, I, I think I told you this, we, we spoke a few weeks ago and, and there's a picture I have that I would not have understood the magnitude of, uh, some years ago, but you know, as, as a white man with a white wife and black and, and, uh, mixed race children, I, I understand it completely, and it's a very powerful picture. And it's a picture of my, my youngest, uh, who just turned seven, uh, who's African-American. And she was about a year old. She started walking about 10 and a half months. I don't know if she was walking it or not, but she was standing at the TV, the little table we have the television on, uh, with her chubby little legs. And she was leaning on the TV screen, and she's looking at a picture of then-First Lady Michelle Obama. Mm -hmm. And I didn't take the picture my wife did, but it just speaks. Yes, it speaks, and that's all. kind of all you really need to say. Yes. So even if, uh, theoretically, if there's a young black man or young black woman who's in court and who may be a defendant and they see a black man prosecuting, who knows what that could mean for that person in the future, Absolutely. just knowing it's a possibility. Absolutely. It's, it's, it uh, hails back to that iconic photo about um, uh, President Obama in the Oval Office leaning over and letting this young black kid touch his hair. And say, oh, it's the same as mine. It's, yes, it is doable. Yes, it is possible. And that's the magic of America, is because for everybody, it is doable. It is possible. And when we fail to believe that, that's when we're lost. Any, any parting shot or anything you want to say that we haven't addressed yet that you uh, think is important for people to know about you, Gerald? Oh, um... Let me see. Um, no, I think we 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 pretty much pretty much covered it. Uh, just you know the things that things that guide my life are uh, my wife of thirty eight years, who by the way is uh, Hispanic of Mexican origin. Met her in junior high school in uh, Wichita Falls, and um, you know we have a mixed race family, um, and she moved around all over the country with me in the Navy and has been right there through all of it. When I get the phone call from uh, law enforcement at 2 o'clock in the morning that something horrible has happened, um, she wakes up, 
She knows what's going on, understands that that's part of, part of the job. Um, she has to share her husband with the community because that's what his job is, you know. And uh, she understands, and without her and her support, uh, none of this would be possible because I tell you, there have been, there have been like anybody, uh, times where you ask yourself those, those tooth-rattling questions and she's always there with a nice uh, solid concrete answer affirming move forward never quit you know and it just resonates uh, with um, things that that I learned on the spiritual side of life um, as a young man and older coming up so yeah um, I, I think that um, the institution of marriage is sacred. I'm very fortunate to have a wonderful wife, and I think that uh, you know people um, people should cherish one another uh, and take every opportunity to respect one another and uh, um, look at the bright side of things. Ladies and gentlemen, we close out this episode of the Square Peg Podcast with a shout out to Mrs. Byers. <laughs> Join us next week. And I want to let y'all know before we go, if you are a square peg or if you know somebody who's a square peg, a mold breaker, a trailblazer, or a taker of road less traveled, we'd like to have them on the show. Get a hold of us at squarepegpodcastlc at gmail.com. And I want to give a very special shout out to a childhood friend of mine who is a very successful podcaster, Mike Powell of the Powell Movement, for his uh, help uh, answering questions I've had over the past few weeks getting this podcast going. If you haven't heard them, it's a podcast that concentrates their efforts on interviewing the best and the brightest and the most powerful in the world of extreme sports along the lines of skiing, snowboarding, and things like that. The Powell Movement is available on Apple Podcasts, just like the Square Peg Podcast is. So long. This has been an episode of the Square Peg Podcast, starring Andrew Lawrence and his cast of mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. Until then, we'll see you on the next Road Less Traveled?